This episode of Getting to Know You is brought to you by O.H. Ingram River Aged Whiskey. O.H. Ingram River Aged is the only whiskey in the world aged in a floating barrel house on the Mississippi River. The constant motion of the river combines with its distinct microclimate to provoke a unique interaction between the whiskey and the barrel that is unachievable in a traditional barrel house. The Mississippi's powerful current, its humidity and extreme temperature fluctuations, ensure that the whiskey never stops working inside those barrels. It is a modern innovation inspired by tradition. Please visit IngramWhiskey.com to learn more and find your closest retailer. That's I-N-G-R-A-M-W-H-I-S-K-E-Y dot com. Mr. Brian Supko, thank you very much for joining me on the fourth episode of Getting to Know You. So let's do just that. Where were you born, sir? Hey, Tim, and uh, thanks for having me on. I was born in Quantico, Virginia, to a Marine family. My father was in the Marine Corps. And we stayed there probably for about a year. And then I moved to Hawaii shortly after, I guess, kind of the typical life of a, of a military background. So, but uh, that's where I was born. And I moved around a bunch until I was, until I was about in high school. And I spent most of, I spent all of my high school career and my parents were there while I was in college as well. But that was in uh, Oceanside, California. So that's, that's kind of where I call where I'm from because that's where I spent the most time at any one time, at any, you know, at any given period of time while I was growing up. What was your father's rank in MOS when you were born? When I was born, he was a captain in the Marines and he was a artilleryman. He, um, and then he continued to do that and he continued on and retired as a colonel, uh, 06 Fulberg colonel in the Marines. Okay. Did your mother work? My mom worked um, mostly stuff on the side because we were moving around quite a bit. So she started off started off working um, like at a at a athletic club um, when we were in one place, and then as we moved around, she took you know different things, and she sort of ended up working in some retail spaces in uh, in some of the bases that we were stationed at because uh, frankly some of them were overseas, whether it be Korea or Okinawa. And so she worked kind of in the American, the, the retail where um, some of the host nation countries could then touch um, American customers through selling stuff on the base. So yeah, she, she did work, but she was primarily a stay-at-home mom. Okay. Did your father ever deploy while you were young and bouncing around the world? He did. He, he deployed when I was, uh, I guess the first one was when I first entered I guess I should say he, he deployed when I was really young and I don't really remember it, but he, uh, he was part of, a, of an exchange Marine program in Israel. And so he was sort of on short deployments there, but I was, I was pre-kindergarten. So I didn't, I didn't quite grasp that. Um, the first real deployment that he took was while I was in, when I first started high school and he went to Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and was gone for the entire freshman year of my high school career, uh, which was probably good and bad. You know, I was a pimply-faced little kid and, uh, you know, just trying to figure out, figure myself out. But, you know, definitely a, a formidable year for him to miss, for sure. Sure. Now, bouncing around all that time, or I imagine it's pretty tough to build relationships with friends that you can't maintain bouncing across the world. Uh, how was growing up in that system? You know, it was, um, it was, it was somewhat fluid when I was really young. Um, I would say until I was in, like, sixth grade maybe 
it was pretty easy because you would just kind of you would just kind of leave in the summer when everybody was out of school anyway. So you didn't see most of your school friends and you just kind of showed up somewhere new. When I got into sixth and seventh grade, I started to make some real friendships and relationships and that, that became kind of hard to maintain. And, and I'll never forget uh, when I left, when I left eighth grade, I was in Alabama and I was moving back to California. And I, uh, you know, we, we were like, man, we're never gonna, we're never gonna forget each other. We're never gonna grow apart. And we, you know, we were writing letters to each other every like couple weeks and, and we talked as much as we could. And then, you know, obviously a, a year or two later, it started to fade off. And strangely enough, I've actually reconnected with that, with that uh, person uh, years and years later, but virtually nobody else. Uh, and so it was really hard to maintain friendships and certainly none that I've, that I've had, you know, that I've had for a long, long time, it, but it really wasn't, it wasn't too bad until I got to be, I guess, around junior high school. Okay. And from that point, were you drawn to anything academically or uh, what was, I guess, your, your main concern growing up in those days? Um, you know, I really gravitated towards sports. Uh, I had a lot of fun doing that. And it was partly because of the kids that I would, you know, happen to be around uh, at the time. So when I was in, when I was in kindergarten, all we did was play sports in the cul-de-sac. And so that kind of started me off and then you know, anything, any kind of fun stuff like that or riding bikes or going around in packs, just doing stuff. So it was really just about going around and doing a bunch of things with friends. And then, I mean, that sort of gravitated to, as I was growing up, I kind of wanted to be, you know, one of the following. I wanted to be a professional sports player. I wanted to be a race car driver. I wanted to be a stuntman because I'd seen a TV show about stuntmen, uh, you know, growing up. I uh, wanted to be a pilot and, um, you know, or I wanted to be like an actor or something. So I guess, you know, catching one of your top five ain't bad as I ended up becoming a helicopter pilot in the army. Sure. Sure. Um, did you, did you go directly into college from high school? I did. I did. I went to, uh, I went to the United States military Academy at West point. And that was, you know, that was a weird decision for me because it was, my father was in the Marines uh, a number of my family members had all gone to the Naval Academy and I just sort of ended up gravitating to West Point uh, and maybe a little bit out of teenage spite, you know, for your, for your parents, you decide to go to maybe their rival school or something. But I thought, you know, I thought maybe I was really, really, uh, you know, putting some pain to my father by going to going to West Point instead of, you know, the Academy that he had gone to, but Turns out that's not such a terrible thing to do to your family. But yeah, that's that's where I ended up. Did the old devil dog have issues with you uh, making that decision? You know, aside from, you know, the competitive Army versus Navy stuff, which, you know, just happened this past weekend with the Army-Navy football game, um, that's really about it. And he actually was a – my father was a very, very good lacrosse player. And uh, and he's in the – actually, he's in the College Lacrosse Hall of Fame. And so – Growing up, uh, and growing up on the West Coast, uh, lacrosse hadn't made it out there yet in the '80s and early '90s, and so I never really touched a lacrosse stick. And so there was some, I guess, there was some underlying expectation maybe for me to play lacrosse at the Naval Academy, and they were interested in me doing that. And frankly, I hadn't touched a lacrosse stick, so it kind of it kind of made it hard for me to have that same interest. And um, but no, my family was very supportive of me going to West Point to uh, pursue. 
obviously pursue the, you know, the entrance into the military world, but also to play baseball, you know, at a high level in, in college division one. Okay. And then what happens upon graduation from West Point? What, what's next? So you graduate after four years and uh, you get a little bit of vacation to kind of get all your stuff and sort of make your way to your first duty station. For most branches and most military occupational specialties, they will go directly to their post that they're going to be assigned to. And then they'll usually go to what's called the officer basic course. Except for aviation, you go to a very specific place called Fort Rucker, Alabama. And that's where the U.S. Army flight school uh, is located. And so all aviation officers or warrant officers show up there and that's that's where they start their training but they don't know where they're going yet and they don't know what aircraft they're going to be in yet and that's all tied to how they do and their order of merit when they graduate you know so we so we went there and after 18 months of of flight school and essentially more studying and 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 work you know i was able to secure the aircraft that i wanted which was the oh58d kiowa warrior which is no longer in service uh, in the U.S. Army in the active duty. And then uh, and my first duty choice uh, or my first location choice of Schweinfurt, Germany, which, uh, which was a really neat thing for me, considering I'd never gone anywhere in Europe with my, with my father while he was in the Marine Corps. So walk me through, is it OCS? Uh, OCS is the, is the Marine Corps version of this. So Officer Basic Course, okay. uh, OBC. That is where they sort of teach you to be a young junior officer in the, in the military. So the army, sort of the army schooling paradigm is every time you get a promotion, you go to a school to teach you how to operate at the next level that you're about to obtain. So, you know, you graduate, you graduate from college, you get promoted to second lieutenant, you go to this, you go to this officer basic course. So you do that for a little bit longer, you get promoted to captain, then you go to what's called the captain's career course. And then you, you know, you go to the next one uh, and it's called the uh, command general and staff course, so on and so on, all the way to the war college. And then there's, there's um, levels of instruction for general officers beyond that. But the basic course is it's exactly that you, you learn how to do physical training, learn how to teach physical training, learn how to handle weapons. If you hadn't done any of that previously, um, all of that because, you know, getting commissioned into any of the branches of service, you don't necessarily have to come from a service academy where, you know, where you might have a little bit more access to things like rifle ranges and just basic military drill and ceremony type disciplines. You know, you could come from San Diego State or, you know, University of Connecticut um, from a, an ROTC program and then walk in. And so you basic genesis of the of the officer basic course is to get everybody kind of on the same page of being a, an entry-level army officer in that specific branch that they're about to serve in. Were you in aviation already in Germany or did that come later? No, as soon as I graduated West Point, I was, uh, I was branched to the, I was branched to aviation. And then as I graduated flight school, then I was a rated aviator in aviation. And from there, I went to Germany. So when I showed up in Germany, I was already, I was already a basic pilot that was rated in, you know, essentially the aircraft that they had at the flight school. And that was, you said, OH-58? Yeah, it's called the OH-58 Delta. It's OH-58D Kiowa Warrior. 
and um, it's a small helicopter. It's it's a it's kind of built off of a Bell four four hundred seven or a Bell four twelve, and um, it had a it had an observation ball. It was kind of a reconnaissance helicopter, and it had this observation ball at the top that looked sort of like ET. If you if you didn't have anything else to to reference into, and I'm showing my age now by talking about the movie ET, um, but uh, but yeah, that was that was the uh, the helicopter. It was like I mentioned, it was small. It was for reconnaissance and um, and uh, a, you know really neat aircraft to fly in, especially right out of flight school. Were those solo flights, or you had a co pilot? So it is a single pilot aircraft, but every time you fly for the most part in the army, you have two pilots in the helicopter. Okay. Was it side by side or was the extra pilot behind you? Oh, good question. Yeah, it is side by side. And there's two sets of flight controls on uh, that are there. So either, either side can fly. And in this particular aircraft, the person in the left seat, if they weren't flying, they could operate the observation ball that was sitting on top of the helicopter. So, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to, maneuver that ball and and have observation of different things while um, the controls for that were connected to what's called the uh, cyclic which is the the piece where you use your hand to essentially maneuver the helicopter and so while that thing's moving left right forward or backwards you're trying to manipulate the controls for that uh, observation ball and uh, and keep it still so it it took a little bit of took a little bit of training and, and a little bit of getting used to I'm sure it did. Uh, tell me what you can about your first duty station there in Germany. What were you, uh, were you flying daily, weekly? What, what was that, uh, that assignment? Yeah, so I was there as a platoon leader, and um, we had about, I would say, probably about 20 guys, 10 or 12 pilots, and another eight or so crew chiefs. You know, you're there, you're a, you're a young manager of, of people, and so I was doing two things. I was learning from sort of my right-hand man and, and that person to a young platoon leader is called uh, a platoon sergeant. And so those two individuals are kind of the ones that are responsible for all the actions of the platoon. Usually a platoon sergeant is a seasoned non-commissioned officer who's been in the army for at least 10 years. And the platoon leader is a young, just out of college usually, or just out of the officer basic course, who's probably been in the army for about two years or less. It's kind of an, it's kind of a unique way that they that they pair those two, so that you uh, you can learn a lot as a young officer, and then you have somebody with experience that you can sort of entrust and ask about how to do things to kind of help you with your help you develop your leadership style. So I walked into that, and then um, you know I had a very very good uh, platoon sergeant there to to join me and kind of help show me the ropes. And then um, he really helped it so that our platoon did a lot of things very well. And that gave me the freedom to fly a pretty decent amount and, and hone my skills as a pilot, as well as become a young leader um, in the Army. And what year would this have been? This was in January of 2000. So early 2000. Uh, did you end up deploying anywhere from Germany? So I was I was in Germany on uh, September 11th, 2001, and um, and I I was on a flight actually, and, and I got out of the helicopter. And I was with a, a few other pilots, and we started walking towards uh, the hangar. Our phones started just buzzing like crazy, 
so we all started answering our phones and people were saying, so we didn't know what was happening. People were saying, you know, there's, there's been an airplane crash into the world trade center, blah, 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 blah. And so we immediately like, we ran to our cars, tried to get to a TV somewhere where we could see what's happening. And from there we watched, you know, I got to, I watched the second plane hit the towers. And that's when I knew that, um, you know, my life was going to change in terms of uh, what my, uh, you know, what my career, what my, you know, army life was going to be in the very near future. So we, right. we immediately, pre- we immediately prepared to deploy and, uh, and we started to do it. And then we, for, you know, for one reason or another, uh, the, the particular unit that I was in uh, kind of stood down on their deployment. And so um, that was a little bit disappointing for me. I mean, cause that's, I was, you know, a young and very eager, you know, young leader. And I wanted to, I wanted to go and, you know, defend my country, especially against what happened. And that sort of led me to, uh, I always wanted to try out for what's called the the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, which are the guys that initially probably got rec- got known or recognized uh, from the movie Black Hawk Down. Is that movie when you first learned about them or, or did you know about them before from school? No, I, I think that was the first time I knew exactly like who they were and what they flew. You know, they flew a little bird in that movie and obviously they flew a black hawk. And so that was kind of the first time I realized who, who they were. And, and then, then it, from that moment on, the minute that I knew I was going to be in the army, I knew that I wanted to be a pilot. And the minute that I earned it, you know, earned the, the, you know, the privilege to go to flight school and become a pilot. As soon as I knew I was going to be a pilot, I wanted to earn my way to be in that unit. You know, there I was uh, a very young captain after being in Germany for a couple of years. And um, yeah, I wanted to go try out and join that unit. And when we, when we couldn't deploy there as the army unit that I was in at the time, that just motivated me to try to get there a little bit sooner. And how quickly did that happen for you? I tried out in October of 2003 and I was, I was in, uh, I was at the unit uh, shortly after the new year in 2004. What's a tryout for that? The tryout for for the 160th is um, it's pretty straightforward. It's a it's a week long assessment, um, and they assess you on your physical skills. They assess you on your piloting skills. They assess you on your leadership skills if you're an officer. Um, they assess they assess you on your teaching skills if you're a warrant officer. And then they have a they have a number of different activities that they put you through or, or tests, I should say. And um, I can't really elaborate on all of it, but. What I can say is that after a week of doing that, um, you are completely taxed out and just exhausted, both mentally and and somewhat physically. And so at the end of all that, they put you in front of a board that reviews your performance over the week and gives you very, very honest, blunt and straightforward feedback about your strengths and more importantly, your weaknesses. So when you finish that board, you know that you are like, you know, everything that you've done good in your career and you know even more about what you need to work on. It's a bit of a, um, you feel pretty vulnerable at times and it's a, it's a really, really daunting assessment. And so for me, it was on, my assessment ended on Halloween day and I was going to be the last assessment board of the week. And so I sort of had this thought, I was like, man, these, these guys have families, got kids, they're going to want to get done and they're going to want to go see their kids and go trick or treating. And my, I think my board started at four o'clock 
And I mean, at 6 p.m., I looked at my watch and I was not done. And they were not done critiquing me on the things that I needed to do better in my aviation career. So at, at that moment, I knew that, you know, the people of that unit, whether it be Christmas, Halloween, whatever, whatever the mission is, they were not going to cut it short. You know, they were going to, they were going to make sure they took care of it all the way to completion. And through that two hour board, somehow on the backside, uh, I came out with an acceptance letter, you know, and a report date for like three months later. Okay. Are there certain uh, specific physical characteristics required for helicopter pilots that may be different from jet fighters? Um, you know, it's, uh, I guess at the baseline, it's all the same. I mean, you need to have good vision. Uh, all your faculties need to be in order. If you go onto the fixed wing side, say like the Navy or the Air Force, and you fly in a jet fighter, you go into other things that you will, that you learn how to deal with physically, like G-forces and stuff like that. And, and we don't really have to deal with any of that on the helicopter side. So I can't speak to it, you know, particularly, but at least from the beginning, it's the entry level flight physical is, is pretty much the same. Um, they mostly want to make sure that, you know, your hearing is good. Your eyes are good. All your other, you know, mental, your mental and physical faculties are intact. And then, uh, and then you kind of go forward from there. I've not been in any military helicopter. Is there uh height or weight specifications that may affect your capacity to perform? So there, you know, there's, you know, you can't be too, you can be too tall, I suppose, but I've seen some pretty tall people squeeze into a helicopter. And, you know, even if, you know, the shortest of short people uh, have, have found their way to make it work as well. So I, I'm, I'm sure there are numbers and I just don't remember what they are, but you know, there's, there's kind of a place for everybody in terms of that, but there, what there, what does come into play is the height and weight standards for whatever branch of service that you're in. And each of them, you know, vary just, you know, maybe a little bit here and there, but, you know, to be in any, any branch of service in the military, uh, you have to meet height and weight specifications, meaning that, you know, if you're, if you're six feet tall, and, you know, you can't be more than 220 pounds, you know, and if you are, you're going to get measured and they'll do a, a fat body index test and, and stuff like that. And it's mostly just to make sure that, you know, you'll be able to handle the physical requirements that that each military branch of service undergoes while they're while they're doing their job. So early 2004, I believe you said you get an acceptance letter to a special forces unit. What uh, what rank are you at that point? And tell me a little bit, uh, a little bit of what you can about your career progression, the, the, the first duty station in the, uh, the 160th and on. Sure. So I'm a, I'm a young captain. Um, I'm probably there uh, a bit sooner than I expected. So I'm one, I'm really excited to I'm, I'm I'm really nervous. And I show up to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, uh, which is one of the three posts for the 160th and the other two are Savannah, Georgia and Fort Lewis or joint base Lewis McCord in, uh, in Washington state. I kind of, you know, you, you show up and, and you, you get signed into the unit. So now you're, now you're administratively assigned and then you start what's called green platoon, which is sort of like an advanced version of the officer basic course that I was telling you about before. And the way that they treat that is, you know, they get pilots from 
all different walks of life in all different places across the army. And they also get enlisted soldiers and uh, non-commissioned officers of every different branch all come into this unit to do things, you know, to do, to perform some sort of duty for the unit. And so not knowing everybody's experience level and different units have different standards, they basically created their own baseline of standards for both combat skills and for flight skills. First, you start off on the combat skill side to where you basically establish yourself to the basic level that they require on first aid, hand-to-hand combat, uh, weapons, small arms weapons, deployment and use, physical fitness, well, whether it be you know the push-ups, sit-ups, and uh, the physical fitness test requirements or road road marches and ruck marches as well as um, a little bit longer runs you go through all that stuff um, uh, as well as land navigation once you complete that portion everybody is is deemed to be on you know the baseline requirement for being a combat skilled soldier within the unit then if you are a non-pilot you go on to your unit and you you start to do you start to do your job uh, at the 160th I think there's probably 38 or so different military occupational specialties in this one aviation unit. So, you know, it's a complete ecosystem all in its own. It's got everything from, it's got its own personnel, it's HR department, you know, a intelligence department, a operations, it's got supply and logistics, uh, communications and IT all of that reside in you. It's, uh, it's also got its own medical, its own uh, lawyer and uh, legal advisors. So all of that exists. And I haven't even talked about pilots yet. So they all, they all get into their part of the unit. But if you're a pilot, then you go into what's called uh, advanced skills. And that's where you go to the aircraft that you've been selected to fly for the unit. And you go and you, and you become what they call basic mission qualified on that aircraft you can do that in a chinook in the little bird or a blackhawk and i was selected by that unit to fly chinooks which was new to me because i was uh i was obviously flying a pretty small helicopter in germany and the chinook is the big, biggest helicopter in the army inventory i was gonna say so, that's quite a jump from the little bubble <laughs> a little flying yeah bubble. absolutely absolutely so it took uh took a little bit of getting used to um, took a, a number of flights to, to get qualified and, and just, you know, make the transition from one type of aircraft to another. And then, um, and then I spent probably about four or five months um, just perfecting uh, the basic skills of that helicopter in, uh, in order to pass, you know, a check ride that would then allow me to join one of the line units, you know, one of the, the units that, that deploy and, and act on behalf of the unit. And there is where you get your real advanced training and, and where the rubber meets the road on, on how to perform um, in that unit. And so this would be somewhere in the middle of 2005 now. And I get to, I get to my unit outside of green platoon training. Almost immediately I get, I start getting prepared for a deployment to Afghanistan. Once you join the unit, it's pretty much a, you knew that you were going to get a deployment sooner or later. I deployed, I got there in the, towards the, you know, the middle of the end of the middle half of the year. And before Christmas, I was in Afghanistan in 2005. What's a full payload on a Chinook? 
It um, it varies on a couple different factors. One, it depends on where you are geographically and and kind of the environment that you're in, how much fuel you have, and then how much cargo you're trying to move. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. If you're trying, if we'll say 40 people, you could probably fill your gas tanks to about three quarters full, which would probably give you about three hours of flight time with 40 people that are about 200 pounds or so. Well, uh, tell me what you can about that first little vacation to Afghanistan. Yeah. So I had not been to, uh, I had not been to Afghanistan before. And, uh, and so I, I got there and I was, you know, anxious, obviously I was nervous and excited as well, but, uh, got there and it was, um, it was probably the darkest place I've ever seen. Uh, we flew at night and our night vision goggles, which, um, it doesn't, it doesn't provide artificial light when you're looking at something. It takes whatever, night vision goggles take whatever ambient light that is out there and it amplifies it in these tubes that you are looking through so that you can see. But when it is completely zero light out there, it just kind of looks like, it looks like a, a green version of the old TVs when you just, when you didn't have a good channel and right. you just get, you just have snow everywhere on the TV. Right. It kind of just looks like that while you're flying. And so it was really, really alarming to me how, just how dark it was and also how underdeveloped the country was. We spent a lot of time uh, just, you know, moving special operations ground, ground forces wherever they needed to go so they could uh, perform their mission and, uh, and then obviously going to get them uh, when they needed to be extracted. I would say, you know, maybe the most, you know, one of the most memorable things about that first deployment was um, you know, we were in a place probably about 30 to 40 minutes away from our base uh, called Bagram. And we were just just going out somewhere and, and we were just kind of doing a flight of, of moving stuff around, not necessarily anything significantly mission related. We were just kind of moving some stuff around for people that were already out and about. And uh, we were going to get gas at this place. And there was a Marine who had gotten shot. Uh, doing something and he was laying on the operator's table and they were running out of blood. It was too dark uh, for any of the medevac helicopters to, to go out and fly that night. So they weren't expecting anybody to be around. And uh, when we came in to get gas. They, they basically asked us if we could, if we could take them back because they were going to run out of medical supplies to take care of this Marine. You know, what was going to be a normal night of just kind of flying stuff around turned into a, you know, a medical evacuation of a Marine who was you know pretty close to, passing on this operating table in right. a remote base in a remote base out in Afghanistan. So then we, we threw them in everybody's, you know, obviously the intensity of the, of our flight, you know, climbed a few notches. Uh, we jumped in and flew directly over a mountain peak, you know, that was ahead of us and tried to try to cut the distance between us and Bagram air base and, you know, and, and climbed a, you know, climbed a 18 or 19,000 foot peak, and then, uh, and then descended into Bagram to get this Marine to safety. Pretty neat thing to do. And, and he survived and, and, you know, he went on and had a great career, but it was, uh, that was certainly a, a very fulfilling thing for my first deployment into Afghanistan. Without a doubt. Did you, do you have to call and ask permission or just say, Hey, I've got a guy, we're coming. It's probably a little bit of both, but um, one of the things that they teach you and entrust you to do as an air mission commander, which I was at the time, is to make some of those decisions on your own. And so this one obviously was not that hard to do. 
Um, there are certainly much more, you know, gray area decisions that are out there, but this one was you know, pretty easy. There's an American soldier, you know, life, limb, or eyesight type of incident. And, uh, and we needed to get him back to a medical facility as soon as possible. And the fact that nobody else was going to come really kind of narrowed down the options, obviously. Right. And right. so we just, we just took it upon ourselves to grab him. And I mean, we immediately called back on a satellite radio and said, here's the situation. Here are the actions that we're preparing to do. You know, obviously, if, if you disagree, let us know. But, you know, and, the, and my boss back at the, uh, at the command post did, did not disagree and, and, you know, gave us the permission to, to expedite and get home as soon, and get back as soon as we could. So we could get that, uh, get that Marine to a, uh, to a hospital. Is there anything else similar or interesting that you can share about that deployment? I'm uh, on that first one. That was really about it. You know, we, we did a number of things out there, but it's, I mean, it's, it's a pretty simple operation at large. If you take away a lot of, if you take away the details that, you know, that most people can't talk about, it's really just about putting special operations forces in the places that they need to be right on time in order to synchronize effects on a, uh, you know, on a target or on the enemy, and then being able to get them out of that target area, um, whether it be under duress or under normal conditions. And, um, and, and you get a little bit of both. Sometimes the target goes great and, you know, they just walk out to a, a landing zone and you go pick them up and go home. And sometimes you gotta, sometimes you have to jump, you know, you have to get into a place where people are getting shot at and people are running around all over the place and they come on and you have to sift through that confusion and make sure you have everybody and then get out of there as fast as humanly possible. You always hope for, you always hope for the easy night, but sometimes you end up with a, with a tougher night than that. How long if it generally, I just may not be a blanket answer, but uh, were the operations, was it hours you drop the guys off and you come back that night or was it a few days or how did that normally play out? Well, it was, uh, it was normally was based off of trying to do it all under the cover of darkness. Uh, just cause that's the advantage that we had, you know, with our technology, it could be a couple of hours or it could take essentially the entire nighttime period of darkness to to do the mission and then sometimes when contingencies arose sometimes it lasted well into daylight but that's just not we usually just did not plan for that but we were always prepared for it but that was usually not the plan so you get back refueled ready to go whenever the call comes in absolutely gotcha how many times did you go play in the desert um i think i think my uh Department of Defense Form 214 says 13 or 14 times. Now that was, um, that's because being on, you know, with the, the people that I deployed with, with the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, they, they don't deploy for the typical, you know, six months or a year at, at any given time. We usually had more high intensity, short duration deployments that were a little bit more focused on specific outcomes. And the other part of that is because we would have to be proficient and qualified on all environments of flight. And so if we spent 12 months in the desert, we would come home and we would not be qualified nor current any longer on, you know, over water, urban environments, environments in the jungle, uh, mountains or snow, stuff like that. So we would always do 
few months here or there and then come back so that we could stay qualified on the other environments because we have a requirement to be um, available to the president or the secretary of defense when needed. Now, what was the, uh, the progression of your career? I know, career. I know at one point uh, you ended up on an exercise in New Orleans. I essentially started off as a platoon leader, uh, again, as a captain. And then I progressed through a company commander, a operations officer, an executive officer, a kind of a staff operations officer. And then I, I culminated as a battalion commander of one of the battalions of the unit. While you're there, you know, if you're not deploying, you are practicing essentially, and you're training with one of the same customers that you would normally deploy with. And the customers generally go and they practice their craft wherever they can find the resources and find ways to replicate places that they're going to need to do their job. Kind of like we mentioned before, one of those happened to be, you know, operating in and around you know, the, the sporting areas around New Orleans and also in that urban environment. We got the, a very, very neat opportunity to fly all around the New Orleans area and got to land in the areas of the, uh, the Superdome. What is the uh, administrative headaches preceding such an operation? Well, I mean, you have the, I mean, you have the general public. We don't normally give them too much of a heads up for two reasons. One, you don't want to scare them and you also don't want to create a bunch of attention for what you're doing. You know, we end up doing a lot of coordination with the city and with the officials and the police. And we just kind of try to try to make it so that we don't have a, you know, to try not to have a negative effect on what's going on. And we also try to, and then we also do it so we, so we can find out if there's something going on that we need, that we ought, that we need to avoid in order to not disrupt something that's going on in the city. Like, obviously we wouldn't have gone and done that training if there was a football game that was going to be played, you know, in the dome that weekend. But you always run into people that, you know, find out one way or another that, that you're there and they always try to come, uh, come observe what's happening. And sometimes they can be in the way. What was your, uh, I guess, your career path from your first trip to Afghanistan up to that point, all the way to retirement? A couple deployments as a platoon leader. And then, then I came back and, and took, a, took a leadership position that wasn't necessarily a flying position for a while. And I was a commander of a headquarters company. And that was more of just leading a bunch of different soldiers with different military occupational specialties that supported the flying and supported the 160th. And then I, you know, then I got back into a flying position as a company commander. And then that was deploying, you know, that was deploying as a pilot. It was also uh, sending others to deploy, which, you know, as a leader, is uh, it's you know it's almost harder to send other people into danger than to go in yourself, and that is a that's a that's a strange burden that that leaders and commanders go through, but uh, but it's I mean obviously it's a necessary evil of being in a in a unit that constantly deploys as a major and a company commander I deployed a number of times and then moved over again into a staff position as an operations officer where I didn't deploy as much but I still would go deploy and. And when you deploy in those positions, you're usually manning the command post. Uh, you may be overseas doing something, but you're not necessarily flying as much. Now you get to watch everybody else go flying and you have to stay back and, and man the command post, which is not as much fun, but it's still a necessary job to do in order to, to achieve the mission. And then moving from there uh, into a battalion commander position, 
you know, you get to do a lot of flying, but you don't do a lot of the missions. Again, you're, you're back in the command post directing all kinds of activities that are happening, maybe not necessarily just the flying and, uh, and you're still there in the, in a leadership position, but not necessarily in the aircraft. So as you get a little bit higher in the ranks, you, your time of going to the target dwindles a little bit, but you always find a way to get out there at least once or twice uh, during your time while you're deployed, while you're, while you're there uh, in the command post. And where did you retire from? I retired from Fort Campbell, Kentucky, as uh, kind of the place that I started with the 160th, which is a really unique thing for, um, you know, aviation or, or just being in the Army in general. I was able to spend almost 15 years of my Army career at one place, which is, uh, which is very fortunate. At some point along the way, I believe you got married. How did you meet your wife? Uh, yeah, I met my wife when I first got to Fort Campbell. And she was going to school at Vanderbilt, which was in close proximity to Fort Campbell. It's in the city of Nashville. I was just hanging out with some friends, and and one of my friends was also dating somebody at Fort at uh, at Vanderbilt. And so, at some point, they decided to make an introduction, and uh, and frankly, the rest is history. It um, you know we started dating, started dating then, and I guess about five years later, after she had seen enough of what the army was like and what and what my career was going to be like that uh, she decided she would stick around and and we should uh, get married do you have children along the way yes we did have uh we had children i guess probably about five years after we got married we have two boys and a girl now over that and over that next 10 years which was um which was very interesting because you know, I was really, I really felt like I was bulletproof when I was a single, a single person doing the military life. I felt like, I still felt like I was bulletproof and, and I felt like I was, you know, possibly dragging somebody along with me in, in my, in my sort of, you know, military adventures when I was married. And then, um, and then when I had a child, it really changed how I saw like, you know, how I have my outlook on life and the effects, you know, the effects and the results that could happen if I were, you know, if something were to happen to me while I was deployed. So, you know, I think that, I mean, people all over the military have very, very successful careers and, and they have children and, and they make it work and they do all the great things. And, but uh, I think it would be, I think it would, I can safely say that like everybody's outlook on deployments and things like that change one after you get married and two, especially after you have children. Sure. How old are the kids now? Kids are nine, seven and three. Okay. So we don't quite, we we don't quite know what uh, they're going to follow you into the the military or not. huh? No, I mean, they, my two boys, which are the two older of the three, they, they saw, uh, you know, they saw me deploy a, a few times and they saw, the base and they saw the military they saw the army post and they saw the airfield and they saw the aircraft and they've gone in the simulator and some things like that so they've they've seen some of that stuff and they talk about it and you know every once in a while they 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 talk about you know going into the army or becoming a pilot or something and of course the new top gun movie has shifted that to becoming a jet pilot right um but um but yeah and uh and you know my daughter she obviously did not uh, she was very very young when when I retired. So when she sees stuff, when she sees me wearing stuff, you know, from my days in the military, she wonders, you know, what, why did you, why'd you put that stuff on daddy? You don't, you don't do that kind of stuff. 
it's going to be an interesting story to tell her, you know, when she gets a little bit older and to let her know about what her dad did before he had to figure out what he wanted to be when he grew up. Sure. And then, so you retired from the military and then tell me a little bit about what you're doing professionally since then. Yeah. So I retired from the military and, um, and uh, I, uh, I immediately walked into a job helping a good friend of mine. I just kind of help, helped him work with his company and, and, and build out his company, uh, which was a, a really interesting thing. It was actually in the prosthetics and orthotics uh, arena. And uh, as soon as I joined that company, we had a tornado in Nashville. And then two weeks after that, we had a, we started COVID. So a really, really perfect time to be transitioning out of the military and into a new job. You know, we immediately started scrambling and, and tried to take over all of that. Did that for about a year. The company was uh, was purchased by a global manufacturer. That's you know at some point through all of that, and uh, and they decided to they basically just got rid of my position. I had been in a, a place where I was you know being pretty successful and and doing doing a good job, and and then they were just going to divest my position, and that was about it. So kind of a rough a rough. Um, welcome into the corporate world but so then I started you know trying to really figure out what I wanted to do now that I was out of the military and I got a strange call one day from uh, from someone at Ingram um, Marine Group I went over there and had a few a few interviews and spoke to some really really good people there and I always knew about Ingram Barge Company because as I was flying up and down the Cumberland River I would see the barges and I would see the vessels moving those barges up and down the river and oftentimes I wanted to land on them, honestly, uh, just to see if I could. That would be but, quite um, a sight. Yeah, but uh, would, so would I that knew... Have, uh, would that have been on the uh, OH-58? Uh, that would have been in uh, probably the Little Bird, not not the OH-58, but okay. they're, they're very similar. They're very similar aircraft in size and, and, and you know, kind of the mission. That would have been a, uh, that would have been a neat thing to do. I probably would have probably gotten myself in a lot of trouble with the captain and, and those, on the, and those on the vessel, but it would have been a lot of fun. How but anyway, much, that's how, how much deck ahead. do you need on a barge to land that thing? I don't need that much space, not in a little bird. Okay. So not too much at all. Okay. Well, sir, I thank you for your service and I do appreciate your time today. Oh, Tim, uh, the pleasure is mine. And, uh, and frankly, you know, it was an honor and privilege for me to serve one of the greatest things I've done with my life. I'm certainly proud of the things I'm doing now after I've retired, but um, it was a great, it was a great time in my life. And, and it certainly wasn't boring. Probably one of the most event filled times of a, of a career of someone joining the military just prior to 9-11 and staying engaged, constantly engaged almost uh, in wartime scenarios throughout his entire career. So it certainly wasn't boring. It was an honor and privilege. And I'm just glad that people like you and, and, Americans in general have been very, very supportive of our troops as we've done this for, you know, we were in Afghanistan for over 21 years. Thank you very much, sir. The pleasure was mine today. Have a great day and I'll see you soon.